I'm Nick Harcourt and welcome to another episode of The Sound of Success, the podcast where we talk with movers, shakers and just plain cool people about music. Our guest this week is writer, director and producer Adam Mackay. Adam and I actually met almost 20 years ago when I got hired to help make some music suggestions for his film Anchorman, The Legend of Ron Burgundy, which he directed and co-wrote with his then business partner, Will Farrell. But before that, he studied at Second City in Chicago and is one of the founding members of the Upright Citizens Brigade Improv Comedy Group. And his other comedy credits include Talladega Nights, The Ballad of Ricky Bobby, Step Brothers, and The Other Guys. They also co-produced the HBO series Eastbound and Down, and in 2007 launched the comedy video site Funny or Die. But Adam does serious as well. He's a producer on the multiple Emmy-winning HBO show Succession, winning big again at this year's Emmys. And he directed and wrote the film adaptation of the Michael Lewis book, The Big Short, about the financial professionals who predicted and profited from the buildup and the subsequent collapse of the housing bubble in 2007 and 8. He received a nomination for the Academy Award for Best Director and won the Academy Award for Best Adapted Screenplay for his work in the film. I could go on. There's a long list of credits on his IMDb page, including last year's satirical look at climate change, Don't Look Up. I think that's a good place for us to jump in, Adam. Welcome to the, to the podcast, and it's lovely to catch up with you again. It's so good to catch up with you, Nick. Uh, it's been a long, long time. Although I was telling you, I listen to you on radio, podcasts, see you on TV. So uh, it feels like you've been a part of my life for the last 20 years. Although, is that creepy? It might be. <laughs> <laughs> well, we were just talking before we started recording about, you know, radio, which is such an anonymous medium in many ways. You don't realize where people are when they're actually listening to your voice. So it, it could be creepy, but you know, I'm, I'm very fortunate <laughs> that I've, I've been able to, to, to do what I do. And uh, I'm sure you can relate as well in, in your own work. And, and I am a fan of your work and all of the different uh, ends of the, the spectrum that you cover. And, you know, we talked about comedy, of course, and then we talked about more serious subjects. And then today, coincidentally, as we're talking, you just made a, an announcement of a pretty significant donation, $4 million to the Climate Emergency Fund. You've been somebody who's been talking about climate change for, for a while. And obviously, we just mentioned the movie Don't Look Up. For you to make that kind of uh, personal commitment, this is something you obviously clearly feel strongly about. And maybe you could just talk a, a little bit about how you came to this this moment where you feel that not only do you have to talk about it, you actually have to contribute if you're able. Yeah. So it, it, years ago, I was, you know, in the same boat as most of us. I had watched Al Gore's documentary, Inconvenient Truth. You know, I would read news stories about uh, the warming of the climate. And it was, I think, about four years ago, maybe five, that I read an IPCC report from the UN about all the details of what was going on with the climate. I'd read some articles. And it disturbed me so much that I then went and read through the actual report. It's very long, so I skimmed through it. And that disturbed me so much that one of the few positive things you can say about social media is that you do connect with a lot of people. So on Twitter, I actually was following climate scientists and journalists and was able to reach out, later had conversations. And my number one question was, this can't be right, right? 
And every answer I got was, oh, no, it's right. And in fact, the IPCC report is conservative because 80 nations have to agree on it. And I then had three sleepless nights where my wife was like, is everything okay? And that kind of launched me uh, down this unpleasant path. <laughs> pathway, although maybe pleasant if we respond to it properly. And recently, I, I, it's done nothing but escalate. The only thing that's changed the last year, I've noticed there are far fewer people denying uh, the warming of the climate. And, and people I talk to look at me like I'm a little less crazy. The downside of that is it took the flooding of a third of Pakistan, Kentucky, uh, the crazy heat events in China, the UK, 40 degrees Celsius, on and on and on, floods in Italy, we, you know, heat events in the West Coast, like a week ago, power outages. So it's never a good thing uh, with the climate when you see people agree. So I had a moment where I'm just like, look, I got to go all in on this. And, you know, I'm lucky I'm over paid as a you know writer director and producer uh but at the, at the same time as i joked with my wife we're not steven spielberg you know we don't have hundreds of millions of dollars so i really tried to like push in the amount that would actually hurt that i would actually notice it and that was the number and climate emergency fund is incredible uh as you know nick uh activism uh, civil disobedience has been the backbone of every transformative moment, really in human history, whether it's overthrowing kings, the civil rights movement, uh, the labor movement, on and on, uh, the AIDS awareness. Um, so I, I love Climate Emergency Fund. I'm now on the board. And uh, yeah, I, this is the, the greatest threat in human history. And I say that from what I've heard from the scientists and what I've read, that is actually a measured statement, which is just crazy to think about. You know, the thing is, it, it's not like it crept up on us, though, is it? I mean, you and I are peers. <laughs> I think I think I got a couple of years on you. But, you know, essentially, when I was growing up in the 70s, I remember them talking about the hole in the ozone layer, you know, and and I remember when they sort of made a big deal out of Earth Day 30 years ago. It's it's not like this sort of hasn't been happening while we've been watching. P politics obviously has a lot to do with this and whether there is the will uh, in, in governments to really um, take it on uh, as, as a crisis. Do you think that that's going to happen? Do you think our politicians will make a difference or... Does it not happen until, as you say, activists really sort of make it happen? And that involves demonstrating and being in the streets even. I, I think that's crucial. I, I, you know, the time you're talking about where we dealt with the hole in the ozone layer, or you can even go back to the 70s with acid rain and lakes catching on fire. It's just a very different time. And big money has just rolled over our governments, our culture, our media, in a way that I, I think, you know, let's face it, democracy is a relatively new 
uh, thing. I, I mean, how long has it been around? 300 years, 250 years, little flashes in ancient Greece and, and Rome, but not really. So one of the big things we didn't account for is that giant money could roll over our democracies like this. I really do believe that, that there was a moment where we were ready to deal with it. I don't know if you remember, but there was an ad with Newt Gingrich and it might've been Hillary Clinton who were both seated saying to camera, we got to deal with a climate emergency. And it was a couple years after that, that it just flipped and the denialism. And we now know from the records from the oil companies, they threw a lot of money into confusing people and misinformation. So we're in a tough, tough spot right now. So I, I'm just a firm believer. I've worked with a lot of different groups. I've worked on, you know, in the past against gun violence, income inequality, but this is the challenge, and I'm convinced people's feet on the street activism is the answer. We need to let these governments know and these businesses know, and the media, quite frankly, the corporate media and the big media, that we're not playing the game. Like, we're not going to participate in this society if it's if you guys are going to keep killing us. So, I, you know, it, it's a it's a tough story because it's, it's very grim in a lot of ways, but it's also uh, very exciting. I, I think we're at a point where there can be a transformation and clearly we need it. So people get down about it, but I'm, I always remind them, remember that the solutions are incredibly exciting, renewable energy, clean air, clean water, uh, a different way of looking at economics and the way the jobs that we hold. So, you know, it, it, it's a challenging time, but it's also an exciting time uh, full of a lot of potential. I want to move on, but just very quickly, you have kids, right? Like I do. I have 19-year-old twins, a boy and a girl. I know you have a, a couple of daughters. What kind of conversations do you have with them around this? You know, I have Gen Z kids and they look at the future and they don't really see one. I mean, there's a lot more than just climate change going on, obviously. But in general, I mean, how do you talk to your to your kids about that? Do you talk to them about it in, in a hopeful way? I mean, you know, this last year was tough. We shot through thresholds that weren't supposed to be hit till 2050, 2100. There's trees growing in the Arctic tundra that wasn't supposed to be till 2100. I'm, I'm sure, Nick, you saw 40 degrees Celsius in the UK. That wasn't supposed to be till 2050. The droughts we're seeing. So it, it it's all hands on deck right now. Um, the thing with my daughters that I just you know, you really can't tell anyone anything, but I just want to model the idea that it's all in, that throw everything you got at this moment. And the other thing with my kids, and, and maybe you experienced this with your kids, is that like the way I'm approaching it isn't the only way to do it. <laughs> there are mm. a million ways to be a climate activist. You can be selling sandwiches out of a lunch truck and find your own way. You can be a singer. You can be an actuary. You can be whatever it is. So I, I think the main message just to send is this is it. It's now. It's everything. Here's what I'm doing because of the job I have. And, you know, I, my daughters are remarkable, creative, lovely people. And I can't wait to see the path that they find and are already finding to deal with this. But, 
but yeah, you know, I can get a little choked up thinking about it. And uh, it, it's it's hard. I mean, my kids are right around your kids age 17 and 21 or 22. Mm. And uh, sorry, Lily. Um, <laughs> but um, but yeah, it's rough. What kind of kid were you growing up? What were you what were you into? I mean, my God, can you, I mean, just, I feel like such an old man talking to people in their twenties now, because <laughs> I mean, we just had, it wasn't this, it was, you know, my mom was a single mom. She was a waitress. We were broke. We were on food stamps and guess what? We had a great time because back in the seventies, in the early eighties, you could be poor and it wasn't a catastrophe. And I was able to go to college at Temple University in Philly, and I paid $800 a semester when I left college. Everything was student loans. I had to work a job as a waiter. Yeah. But when I left, I left college, I owed $3,500, and I went to do theater and improv. And guess what? I defaulted on my loan. And then when I got a job at SNL, I called up the people and I was like, I want to pay my loan off. But like, you can't do any of that now. Like kids leave college owing 80 grand, 100 grand wages, healthcare, everything has just gotten so much more predatory and nasty. And I mean, once again, I, the story of this time is just big money rolled over everything. And uh, it wasn't how I grew up. Uh, so, you know, I was a, a kid like, you know, millions of other kids. I grew up loving Steve Martin, Monty Python, Richard Pryor, and then later, you know, Saturday Night Live, Eddie Murphy, Bill Murray, uh, laughing David Letterman, stand up comedy. It was, um, you know, America was working pretty well back then. It wasn't perfect. It's never perfect. There were still issues. There were things we hadn't dealt with, but I just remembered my mom working as a waitress and we had dinner, we had food, we had clothes. I went to a good public school and none of those are a given now. I mean, was that your experience as well? Well, you know, I grew up in, in, in the UK. Uh, when I say grew up, I, I, I describe it as the land of my birth and dubious nurture. But um, uh, <laughs> I, I was out of school at 16. I had a, a life to, to, to live. I didn't know what it was, but it, it wasn't the one that had been presented to me up until then. But, you know, I, I can share my experience of the, of the US education system is happening right now with the same two kids I was just talking about. And in fact, my daughter is a temple. Come on. Really? Yeah, right. Small, small world. Um, my my kids uh, have lived in Philly uh, with with their mom for the last seven or eight years, and uh, so she's now in her second year at Temple. And all I can tell you is that the student loans are still there, as as I'm sure you know. Uh, we're trying to limit her exposure to to them, um, and she lives in states, so it's you know it's not as expensive. But yeah, we have kids who are going to school to to get degrees to do what, and you know I think it's appropriate that the kids question what they're going to do, you know, as they look uh, at getting degrees as opposed to 10, 20 years ago where people just, oh, I think I want to do this. It, it's, you got to be a little bit more focused if you're going to college today, I think. Hey, here's the, uh, some other really good news. I just saw today that a Home Depot unionized the first Home Depot. You're seeing the union movement 
with Starbucks. You're seeing it with Amazon. There is a labor movement starting to burgeon and grow. And you know, from the UK, the number one thing they first took down with Thatcher and Reagan was they went for those labor unions and for labor to come back. Yeah. It actually relates to climate. It relates to everything because the power has gone way too far to the 0001% and it needs to be corrected. So, uh, but I love Philly. I had the best time. That's where I grew up. I grew up outside Philly, then went to college in Philly. Um, it's a great town. Yeah, it really is. I've had the the, the good fortune to be there, uh, you know, a few times a year for, for in recent years, and I, I enjoy it. Let, let's go back to to you though. You went to Chicago, and then you got the gig writing for for SNL. Uh, I read that you originally applied to be a performer on the show. Is that right? <laughs> yes, I was doing a show at Second City uh, with a bunch of really talented people. It was called Pinata Full of Bees, and Lauren Michaels came and asked me to come audition. But you know, that that Chicago style of sketch and improv is unusual. I was more like a Harold Ramis guy in that I didn't really do a lot of characters or impressions. So when I auditioned, but I, that was a good show, Pinata Full of Bees, so I could perform. Mm. And so when I auditioned, I put together an okay audition, but I brought my scripts with me and I walked off stage and I said to Lauren Michaels, I also write. And it was the best move. <laughs> <laughs> so then I got hired as a writer. I did one year as a staff writer and then uh, became a head writer. From your time um, performing in Chicago and then going to Saturday Night Live and as you said, ultimately becoming head, head writer, What's your biggest takeaway from that time that has become a part of how you work today? It's everything. I mean, I was very lucky that I got to work with this uh, legendary improv teacher, which probably most people don't know, but his name was Del Close. I got to work with all kinds of teachers in Chicago. Chicago at that time in the early 90s was a really unique place. It has an, to this day, has an incredible theater scene, one of the best in the world. And it's a very working class town. So it has a history of activism, unions, but you could do a show in a little tiny storefront theater, which is how we started Upright Citizens Brigade. And you would get reviewed in the papers. Later in New York City, you know, my wife is a theater director. She couldn't get reviewed because the theaters are all so big. There's so much money. Mm. But Chicago had this incredible uh, just history of uh, political activism causing trouble, being ridiculous and silly, but also being smart at the same time. And everything till close taught us was about that challenge your audience make them uncomfortable uh treat them like they're they're brilliant because they actually are and even when you're doing something silly or quote dumb be brilliantly dumb and silly and right and then snl uh i mean that was kind of like graduate school in the sense that you get your butt kicked you know you have a great week you get three sketches on or you have a great week as head writer, the rewrites you're pumping out are all hitting. And then boom, you're right back at it again. And you're working for a boss, Lauren Michaels, who's just been around. He's seen it all. He's unflappable. So you have a hot week or two 
and his heart rate doesn't go up. He's just like, let's keep it going. Mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. and there's, you know, he's worked with hundreds, you know, hundreds and hundreds, maybe almost thousands of writers and performers and yeah. directors. And so I had some of the greatest weeks of my life at that show. And I had some of the roughest weeks of my life at that show. And I later, when I was doing the movies with Will Ferrell and we would have a rough day, we would look at each other and go, you know what? We're not at SNL. <laughs> and everything would feel lighter. And that's not a slam on the show. It just meant that it was that hard. And and Ferrell and I would just both smile and go, oh, yeah, it's a piece of cake. <laughs> let, let me ask you about your, your work today. What What's your writing process? Do you, do you have office hours? It's funny you ask. I just did a 10 hour day yesterday. I'm working on a new script. I love writing. I love it, love it, love it. The excitement of the blank page and it can be anything. So it, it's a constant give and take between producing because I also love producing and we have our new company, although not that new anymore. I guess we've been around for three years, maybe four. Hyper Object Industries. And uh, so we produced a, a lot of things. We have a new movie coming out called The Menu. Um, we do uh, produce Succession, bunch of bunch of different things. And so it's a bit of a give and take. And my associate producer, uh, Stacy Roberts Steele, is always trying to kind of make sense of the two. So we just carve days out. But over this summer, I went to Ireland for two and a half months and just wrote nonstop for two and a half months. And it was, it was delightful. I mean, no better country to write in than Ireland. Right. Yeah, exactly. And then do you just sort of like hole up somewhere and just sort of get up in the morning and start writing? That's it. Yeah. We bought a lake house uh, about an hour North of Dublin about three, four years ago. And so I stay there and it is beautiful. It's in County Cavan, which everyone in Ireland asked me, why did you move to County Cavan? I'm like, all right, it's my secret. You're lost. Yeah. Uh, lakes everywhere, just nice. lush green trees, quiet. And that's exactly it. I get up in the morning, uh, meditate, go for an hour walk, come back, uh, have a little, you know, late breakfast and then just write. And it is the best. How, how do you bounce between comedy and, and more serious work? Has it varied as you've gotten older and you get more serious yourself? Or is it just really about the projects that either come to you or that you conceive yourself? Sometimes it might be comedy, sometimes it's not. You know, the whole idea of our new company, HyperObject, is the term HyperObject is from an eco-philosopher, Timothy Morton, and it means a force uh, that is so large that you can't grasp it through a single perspective. Um, so we named the company that because we we were trying to acknowledge that we're in a new time right now, where between climate and inequality and race and the internet and all these forces that Timothy Morton would call uh, hyper objects, there's no way to totally encapsulate them. So. 
a lot of what we're doing is experimenting and playing with the idea of, and, and if you look at Don't Look Up, it's really about that. You know, the first three quarters of the movie are a pretty ridiculous kind of uh, farce or satire. And then in the end, it gets very serious. And that was sort of my interpretation of what it's like to be alive right now that you have these ridiculous laugh out loud forces that are still dangerous. And then they, you know, like Donald Trump or corruption or media ignoring obvious things going on there. It's funny, but it's also got consequences. So, you know, with a lot of the things we're trying to do, we have a documentary coming out called God Forbid on Hulu. That's about the uh, affair that Jerry Falwell and his wife had with a young gentleman from mm. Miami that they met at a hotel. And if you watch that story, it's it's hilarious. It's dark. It's disturbing. It's ludicrous. And so it, I think it's a really strange moment where we're somewhere in between the Marx Brothers Boone well and, and uh, breaking the waves, you know, Lars von Trier. I mean, there's all these, there's not really one genre to the time we're living in. So yeah, a lot of what we're, we're doing, I mean, the script I'm working on, I don't know what to call it. It's a very dark comedy satire. Um, so it's, it's why we started this company. It's kind of everything we're doing. Right. Are you are you still working on the Elizabeth Holmes story? Weren't you working on that? We were. Yeah, we're working on that with Apple. That's still kind of in the garage. Um, you know, there was that really good series that just came out. So we'll see. I mean, it's funny. Everything moves so fast now. So you get to work on a project and then six months later, the world is shot past that and your project looks quaint. And you're like, wait a minute, a congressman just went on TV holding a pot-bellied pig and said, <laughs> worships the devil? Wait, wait a minute, that's now normal? So it's it, Tuesday. It, yeah. It, exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, that, that, is a, that is an amazing story anyway. I did watch the documentary, uh, the, the series about it as, as well. Um, let's jump into our music questions. Uh, what is your first musical memory? Oh my God. Every story I just told New York city, Chicago, Philadelphia, it's all music connecting all of it. So my first musical memory was my dad he is currently a bass player and he's, you know, when you're a bass player, you're always playing in about four different bands. So my mm. dad in his seventies lives outside New Haven, Connecticut, and is in like four different bands. And so when I was in preschool, I remember being in our apartment in Worcester, Worcester, Massachusetts, and hearing my dad and his band uh, beneath us practicing playing squeeze box by the who. <laughs> so that's my very first musical man. That that's a different one. It's it's uh, you know I ask these questions of a lot of people, and that that is a unique one. Yeah, my my dad covering the Who. I love it. Yeah, it was like nineteen seventy two or something like that. Yeah. What was the first music that you bought with your own money? Very first music that I ever bought. I'm, obviously, I'm old, so it's vinyl, and I'm trying to remember the first record I bought. Oh my God, that is a good question. You know what's crazy? 
some of the first music I ever bought was The Who. <laughs> I was in middle school and I was way into The Who, which I never drew that connection before. So I remember just getting way into Quadrophenia. Ah. That, was the big, that was the big first record that I was like, this is cool. And then very quickly on the heels of that, everything flipped going into the 80s and hip hop broke. And everything was, I grew up, you know, around Philly, everything was hip hop. So it was like The Who, some heavy metal. I was kind of, you know, top 40 because I was in middle school. I remember listening to like the Thompson twins and like stuff like that. You know, uh, or, uh, Streets of Fire, I can dream about you. And I was, uh, by the way, back then, buying the 45s uh, from the record store for 99 cents. And then, boom, Run DMC, Curtis Blow, and everything was about hip-hop. It's interesting how these moments uh, arrive. I, I am a couple of years older than you, so less on the, you know, telling me you're old. You know, I I I grew up in 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 the UK where the big change obviously was punk rock when it came in in '76, I guess, and and there are those moments where there is a, a shift in music and it's usually a generational shift, and and hip hop was like punk rock in its own way. Oh yeah, I mean, I bought a Gemini mixer, I got my turntable, I stopped playing the Who records, I took the belt off of it. I got another crappy turntable from my sister, I think, took the belt off that, started mixing my own cassette tapes. We were, you know, 15 years old, Rock the Bells by LL Cool J came out. And by the way, give that a listen again to your listeners out there. That is, that still holds up. And that thing, that and Eric B and Rakim were like, and, and Public Enemy eventually were like a shockwave through all of us. Everything started to come together around that. And I was going to a record store in Philly. There was a DJ there called named Cosmo D. And he had all the new records coming out. And my friends and I were buying them. And I'll never forget, we went in there and he's like, you got this, you got B-Boy document, you got Steady B. It was like, yeah, we got that, we got that. And he looked at us, it was like, you white boys are on it. <laughs> and we like went home like, we're on it. Mm -hmm. uh, but we loved it, loved it. And you know what's funny? I didn't discover punk until I was late in college, out of college. And then I got into like the third wave of punk. And there was a band shellac in chicago that i loved and we got into this other band frontier and through that i went back and listened to all the early punk and then got way in the punk and you know the harder rock as nirvana it but but always for me it's live music i mean live there's just nothing like it all my greatest memories I'll never forget leaving a stand-up club in around 1988. And I'm with a comic, Paul F. Tompkins, who's brilliantly funny, he's still working today, still very popular. And my friend, John Hoy, and we're walking out of the Comedy Works uh, down around Market Street. And we went past a club named the Kyber Pass. And it was a Tuesday night. And I heard this racket coming out of there. And I was like, what is that? And my friends were like, that's just noise. And I went in 
and there were five people in the audience and there was a band in a circle just doing that kind of noise thrash and it was the flaming lips oh nice and my friends were like we're going home and i'm like i'm not going home Very and i just stood right in front of a stage with the flaming lips just doing basically a concert for me so all those live oh my god and even new york city which has changed so much when I moved there to do SNL, it was 95. So there was still that gas in the tank, uh, which given the climate, not the right analogy, but, sure. um, <laughs> and I just remember seeing like some of the great, oh my God, there was, do you remember the band come C O M E? Yes. Yes. Uh, I saw them live like four times, super chunk. Jesus lizard used to blast it out back then, but everything was music. Chicago, that entire experience was live music and it was so good. Well, and the thing about New York, obviously, is every five years, there's a scene of, of some description or not. I mean, it just keeps going. But when you were there, as you said, in uh, the mid nineties, uh, the whole indie slash alternative rock scene was breaking big time, wasn't it? Thanks to Nirvana. And uh, it must've been an exciting time to, to, to live in New York and obviously go to live music. And my next question is, what's the first concert you went to? First concert I ever went to was Fresh Fest in 1986. I was a freshman in college, obviously way into hip hop. And they were doing this crazy show at the old Spectrum, which has been, I think, torn down. And the lineup was crazy. It was like LL Cool J, Stetsasonic MCs, Public Enemy. I'm trying to remember if Run DMC was on that bill. Uh, Big Daddy Kane may have been on that bill. And I'll never forget, my friends and I took the subway over to the Spectrum and we were walking in. And this is early hip hop. And Philly cops are back then were not the nicest bunch and they weren't exactly very racially sensitive. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, I think you can pretty much say, I think even Philly cops today would be like, oh yeah, they were racist back then. So we were walking up to the spectrum and a bunch of Philly cops, you know, with their thick Philly accents were like white boys. I would not go in there. If I were you, I wouldn't do it. It's going to get ugly. And we went in and had the best time. We were in the second, you know, we were in the mezzanine. There was a, a, a Mexican-American guy to our left who passed over a joint. I'll never forget LL Cool J with the big radio on stage. And then when Public Enemy came on, everyone rushed the stage and they played Rebel Without a Pause, which had just come out. I had the single of it. And uh, that was my first real concert. I, I Obviously, my dad played music, so I sure. didn't. Yeah, I have music and stuff, but I'll never forget it. Incredible, incredible night. What an amazing experience. And to, to be introduced to live music uh, in that way. Let me ask you this. What, what do you listen to when you when you want to dance? <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> I'll never. We had a great New Year's Eve in New York. I think it was 1999. And my wife loves to dance. I don't dance a lot, but I can dance a little bit. Sure. So we were, going, we were going out with some friends and my wife's like, I just want to dance. And I was like, look, if you're going to get me on a dance floor, it's got to be Cuban jazz. 
And so, God, it was back when the Village Voice was still, I don't know if that's still around. I think they got rid of it. But anyway, we opened up the Village Voice. We looked through all the music. And sure enough, we found like a quintet that was doing uh, Cuban jazz for New Year's Eve. And we went and got a good meal, then went and we just danced all night long. So you never go wrong with Cuban jazz. I know it's not hip now, but back in the day, I used to see ska live and there were so many good ska bands back in the early 90s. And it's impossible not to dance when you see that. Um, so yeah, I would say Cuban jazz. Cuban jazz, just I defy you not to dance. Just a just a sign of the greatness of New York City that you can be like, let me just look in the in the voice oh. and see if there's oh, there's a Cuban jazz trio or what whoever it was. It's amazing. I, I think the voice is uh, online now. I think it still operates online. But yeah, remembering alternative weekly newspapers and what a big resource they were, obviously for for live music and everything. Obviously before before the web, when you could just pick up your phone and find out pretty much anything about anywhere. What about if you're feeling a little melancholy, a, a little sad? Is there a particular music or artist that you listen to then? Yeah, yeah, there's a bunch of stuff. I mean, the, believe it or not, one that I go to quite frequently, if I'm writing something that's going to get, a, you know, a little bit minor chord, I just always go to Philip Glass's uh, The Metamorphosis. Mm. Like, Never go wrong with that. Uh, Vic Chesnut uh, is someone I always will reach for. Um, I was just listening to Vic Chesnut's first album, Little, the other day. Mm -hmm. Isadora Duncan, I think it's just one of the great. Vic Chesnut's a guy, I, I know someone like you really knows Vic Chesnut, and, and he's obviously passed away. A couple but of years I, ago, yeah. He's, oh my God, brilliant, brilliant. Yeah, I saw him live. I saw him live down in Birmingham. Uh, we were shooting Talladega Nights and he was playing and we saw him and Jonathan Richmond. Uh, but Vic Chesnot, I'll go to, um, uh, what's her name? Vashti, uh, I'm getting her name right, Vashti Bunyan. Mm -hmm. is her name. Yes. I'll go, to her, I'll go to her. You know what I got really into recently and I just started deep diving is Melanie. Like, God, I forgot how good Melanie is, uh, the 70s folk singer, although I think she's still around. So I was is still around, yeah. Yeah, look what they've done to my song, Ma, which is actually, as my composer would call it, major minor, where sometimes you can play something in a major key and it's actually sadder. And look what they've done to my song is a song that's got kind of a positive moving forward feeling and it actually makes you sadder. Um <laughs> Uh, so yeah, my composer hit me to that idea. He calls it major minor and he played in the major. It's actually Saturn. He's right. He's right. There's songs throughout history that kind of have that feeling. So did you see the recent kids in the hall reboot on, on Amazon? Are, are you a fan? Or? I love the kids in the hall, a huge fan, definitive Norm Hiscock, their head writers. Uh, he and I wrote a ton together at SNL love I, and you know what i haven't seen it the reason i bring it up is that there is there is an episode where dave foley who's actually been on this show um is playing he, he's essentially the last dj like it's you know the world is ended but <laughs> he's in there 
and he's he's the last DJ in his basement, and he's got one record, <laughs> the DJ Nightmare, and it and it's it's the other Melanie song. It's brand new key. If you're a kids in the hall fan, it's certainly worth checking out. But it's worth checking out for anybody. Yeah, it's the last the last DJ and the last song. He's only got one. That's good song. That, that that maybe that should be a question we should add to this uh, to to this list. And <laughs> I'll start off with you. Um, if you only had one song that you could play forever, what would you pick? Oh my God. Oh, that's good. Isadora Duncan by Vic Chestnut's not bad, but I would also go, oh, you know what? I would go to uh, Schizophrenia by Sonic Youth. Oh my gosh. That's a song I can listen to a million times and I don't get sick of it. I might go with uh, I'm trying to think of layered, layered, layered music. I'm going to keep it with vocals because I would probably instrumental. You can always twist it. I don't know. I'm pretty happy with those two answers. I also might <laughs> throw in, uh, I might throw in some public enemy. I'm trying to think of Kendrick Lamar has got some songs that I might go with too. His stuff is so layered and elaborate. Um, but yeah, yeah, that's 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 more than one. By the by the way, I'm just <laughs> pointing pointing that out. This is not. No, I gotta away, give you but... one. I gotta give you one. <laughs> I'm gonna go with Isadora Duncan by Vic Chestnut, just because I brought it up and I probably listened to it 500 times, and I just think it's gorgeous and lush and sad yet funny. Uh, for in this moment, Isadora Duncan, Vic Chestnut. Well, well yeah, it's great, great choice, and we're. I, we're 47 episodes into this series and uh <laughs> i'm adding that question uh as from here on in uh we've only added two questions since we've been doing that it's a small questionnaire and here's the second question that we added probably about a year ago do, do you have a favorite music video and and if so why Ooh, i like that one uh favorite music <laughs> i mean first thought was I mean, music videos are almost a different category, but I remember when Jay Giles band Angel in the Centerfold video came out, mm -hmm. I must have been, I don't know, 13, 14, but it, I don't know if you remember it, but it was these women in the hallway doing cartwheels in lingerie. And it, that would have got my interest. Yes, that would have got my attention. Like we were all 13, 14. You're coming out of that period where you're a kid, you're reading comic books, you're playing wiffle ball. And that video hit and everything changed. Like all the dynamic between my friends and I, it was just, I mean, you know, it's a different world now, but at its root, rock and roll is sex, you know, and, and thank God it's evened out because it used to be guy sex back then. Now women have much more of a voice in music and rock and roll, but that, that's one that just pops to mind immediately. But if I was going to artistically say my favorite, <laughs> favorite I, I, you know what I would just say is Smells like Teen Spirit. I mean, that's another one where it just hit and was like, what the hell is going on with those anarchy cheerleaders and that song and that moment? And, you know, it's funny. I was thinking about Nirvana the other day and what Kurt Cobain was saying. And it's just like, he was right. 
Like you look at what he was saying in that moment and you look where America is now. And it's like, Kurt Cobain was right. Like he was smelling something. He was picking up on something yeah. that was very real. So probably favorite all time would be smells like teen spirit. It's, it's pretty hard to top. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to step out on a limb here, but I would say that the nineties was the last great decade. There you go. Said it. I don't think you're wrong. Well, in, in this sense, I think the word great, maybe you're you're putting that word to the test i would say it's the it's the last decade where stuff was working <laughs> i would right. say it's the last decade where civilization was actually doing what it's supposed to do which is why we agree to participate in it <laughs> and really if you look at the aughts and you look at george w bush dick cheney you look at the leaders john major you look all around the world I don't think stuff has really, quote, worked ever since that period. So, yeah, I would agree with that. Do you have a, a recent musical discovery that you'd like to share with our listeners? Oh, man, what's better? Oh, yes, I do. I had one yesterday. So I, I am a broken record on the fact of, like, what happened to protest music. There used to be great protest music into the 80s, 90s, fight the power, American idiot, Green Day going all the way back to Phil Oaks, uh, you know, I'm not going to march anymore. And to the point where my friends and I in Austin actually made a protest record uh, called Public Domain protest song which I, it's on youtube and there's some good songs on it so i was just the other day thinking like is there any protest music i'm missing and i looked it up and somehow i missed this song by bright eyes and it's called when the president talks to god and i'm sure some of your listeners are like a duh that's one of the great ones but somehow I missed that and I found it the other day and was like, holy moly, this is good. So that that was a good one. That's exciting yeah, when that happens. I, I think Connor Oberst is a, is a, a fantastic writer. Um, do you have a band or an artist that you love, but you think perhaps they never quite got the big break that they should have? Yeah, I would say the band Come, uh, C-O-M-E. Uh, I saw them live about four or five times and some of the best live music I have ever seen. They lit up the crowd. Their stuff translated to CD slash vinyl. And then I would say probably in my life, the greatest rock band I ever saw live was Jesus Lizard. Mm. I, never experienced anything like it. They smack you in the face. They can play their instruments. They lit the room up. I saw them a bunch of times live. So I give you two answers there. But I would, the trick is with Jesus Lizard, they are appreciated. People know that they were really good. I would say come, people know they're good, but it's pretty small. So I would go with come. Like that. that is one of the great, bands thalia zedek i think is the lead singer and man and guitar player she could wail oh my god some great live shows do you have a, a band or an artist that you would describe as a guilty pleasure and it's a it's a strange question because if it's a guilty pleasure you're probably not going to tell anybody but most people today tell me oh, there's nothing to feel guilty about but is there perhaps a an artist <laughs> uh that people might be surprised that you would like 
uh, surprised for sure. One of my all time favorite bands is Chumbawamba. Nice. And I love them. And people don't know because they had that big hit, you know, I get yeah. tub thumping was their hit. Yeah. But they were very political, right? They were socialist slash anarchist. They later put out a bunch of beautiful acapella political music. They're really cool. They really struggled with the idea of how to deal with that giant hit they had. And I have a bunch of their records and uh, they're really, really good. Unfortunately, they disbanded, but that would be a good one. And then the, the guilty pleasure would be, this is a, a legitimate guilty pleasure and i'm gonna say it because who cares uh a, a band from the 70s seals and croft mm. wow little yacht rock there i love them diamond girl bam bam you know oh summer breeze makes me feel fine i can't sing uh, uh, notice. but no. seals and croft is vintage guilty pleasure yeah remember where you heard it first folks and he sang it as well um <laughs> And uh, and we always like to to wrap up with this question at the end of the interview, and that is uh, or conversation at the end of the conversation. How are you feeling right now? Right now, I am feeling quite good. Um, leaning back, I do have something else to run to. So in the back of my mind, there's a little bit like, oh shoot, I gotta get to it. Gotta go, yeah. But but I've had a good day. Uh, you know, yeah. There's a lot of scary stuff happening in the world, but. You know, we're all going to do what we can do. And uh, I really do see a turn coming. I would say to answer your question in short, I'm optimistic. Well, Adam, it's been great catching up with you. I, I feel like we could have talked a lot longer, but uh, I'm grateful that for the for the time we had. And I, I really uh, appreciate you taking the time. Nick, such a pleasure. Uh, love you. Love everything you do. And I think you're right. I think you and I could have talked for four hours. We'll find a way to do it again. Thanks so much, Adam. The Sound of Success is hosted and produced by myself, Nick Harcourt, for Spark Network. Our theme music is by Keita Klein. For more episodes, find us on Spotify, Apple, sparknetwork.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.